Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We've reached the third chapter in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, and this uh, chapter marks a shift in Paul's thought. He's been talking about how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel uh, that's been received, and now in these verses he gets to the very heart of the gospel uh, that uh, Paul preaches. These are very uh, rich verses, uh, just reading them uh, uh, and studying them this week. It was just a a delight uh, to to stew in them, and I hope uh, that you'll delight in them with me from uh, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, as we come to these verses, our prayer is simple. We want to know Christ and to gain Christ and to be found in him. And we ask that you would work through this text by your spirit to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We were made for acceptance. Psychologists recognize that uh, the desires to belong and to be accepted are fundamental needs. Intuitively, we sense uh, that this is true as well. We were made with a hunger to hear words of approval. Well done. Welcome in. You belong. We're thirsty for those words. And because we're thirsty for them, people give their lives, their time, their resources, their bodies, in hopes of hearing them. And we have a habit of attaching our significance and our hope of acceptance upon our performance. And the consequence of this habit is crushing. Universities are grappling with mental health challenges as students embark on the agonizing drive to perform and win the acceptance of professors and parents and peers and future employers. Students at Stanford University have coined the phrase duck syndrome to describe their experience. Just as a duck glides across the surface of the water with ease while its legs frantically kick beneath the surface, so many students project a happy-go-lucky attitude all the while flailing out of sight to stand out and to justify their experience. So I wonder, does that describe your experience? Are you a duck? Frantically kicking to prove yourself to yourself or to others, 
that your existence is worthwhile, all the while giving the appearance that you've got it all together. If that's you, I've got good news for you this morning. Our passage this morning gives us the answer to this longing for acceptance. It may be an answer that you've been searching for without success. You don't know how to find the acceptance you've deeply desired, or you don't know how to free yourself from this crushing uh, uh, pursuit of acceptance and approval. Or maybe you know the answer that our passage gives, but you haven't yet given yourself over to it. Or, quite likely, there are uh, many of us here this morning who know the answer, but we desperately need to have that answer regain a functional priority in our lives today. And here's the answer that our text gives to this, this quest, this longing, that the acceptance that we need, the acceptance that we're searching for, the acceptance that we were made for, that really matters, it comes from God freely as we trust in Jesus Christ alone. So let's look at the text. We're going to look at three headings. First, the Christian's identity, verses 1 through 3. Then the Christian's accounting, verses 4 through 9. And then the Christian's life, both now and forever, in verses 10 and 11. So while at the end of chapter 2, we saw that Paul tells the Philippians to uh, watch men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, who would help them to grow like Jesus, now Paul tells the Philippians to watch out for men who would lead them away from Christ. Watch out, he says three times. And if that repetition doesn't uh, capture our attention, the biting words that Paul uses should. He uses three very strong terms in these verses, each term leveled against the same group of people. And we know from the context here that Paul is speaking against a group of people sometimes referred to as the Judaizers. If you think back to Pastor Dale's uh, sermon series in Galatians, you know that Paul has tangled with this sort Before, Judaizers were people who believed that true acceptance uh, by God required an observation of the Old Testament law, including the dietary laws and the laws around circumcision. And though these Judaizers correctly understood that under the Old Covenant, God had required uh, his covenant people to be marked off by circumcision, these Judaizers misunderstood the significance of circumcision itself. They made circumcision a necessary condition to be in right relationship with God. So if you were a a non-Israelite male and you became a Christian, these Judaizers would start sharpening their knives and thinking, okay, a circumcision is in order here. Because for these Judaizers, belonging to God's people was initiated by grace, but ultimately it was conditioned upon obedience to the Jewish laws. Or to put it more simply, a person was saved by grace plus works of the law. It was grace plus circumcision, grace plus uh, observation of the dietary rules. The Judaizers believed that there was an intrinsic importance and a necessity to the act of circumcision and to these Old Testament uh, ceremonial laws. Paul, however, he's going to give no quarter to people who hold and teach such a view. In Galatians, Paul is adamant that adding to the gospel is subtracting to the gospel. By saying that we need something in addition to the gospel in order to be saved, we're saying that uh, God's gospel is not sufficient to save. And so we're going to look more at, at Paul's gospel in just a few minutes, but now understand that as Paul's writing to the Philippians, he's got a sense of urgency. He senses that there's a, a threat here, and so he responds forcefully. And the three terms that Paul uses are strategically chosen to have maximum sting. So first he calls the Judaizers dogs. 
The Judaizers insisted that by their scrupulous uh, observation of these Old Testament dietary laws, they were maintaining a spiritually clean status before God. It was the Gentiles, they said, who ate food uh, like pork and other forbidden foods who were unclean, and, and as such, they were unfit to come into God's presence. And Paul then takes, takes their claim and turns it on its head. He calls them dogs. Now, dogs in that day, I know it's hard for some of you to believe, but they were viewed uh, not fondly as pets, but they were viewed as unclean, mangy scavengers. They ate garbage and other putrid uh, things. They epitomized for Paul the unclean. And Paul says the Judaizers, with their reliance upon these uh, ceremonial laws, they were like unclean beasts. Secondly, the Judaizers also claimed to be promoting what was moral and right. But Paul says they're actually doers of evil. Though the Judaizers weren't uh, promoting licentiousness, uh, wild living, partying, they were leading people away from the gospel of God with their false teaching. And so Paul says they're evildoers. And to top it all off, Paul says that though the Judaizers thought that they were rightly circumcising the flesh, they were mutilators of it. They were like uh, idol-worshipping uh, uh, pagans. Maybe think of the priests uh, who served under King Ahab uh, who uh, worshipped Baal. They're on the, the mountain, uh, Mount Carmel with Elijah, and they're crying out to their gods, and they're cutting, they're mutilating their flesh, doing that to win the favor of the gods. So according to Paul, these Judaizers were unclean, though they boasted in their cleanness. They were evil, though they boasted in their moral uprightness. And they were mutilators of the flesh. Uh, they were not the circumcision. They failed on every account they insisted upon. How come? Well, verse 3 gives the answer. Because, Paul says, these Judaizers fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be one of God's people. For we are the circumcision. This is Paul's way of saying that we are the people who are marked out as belonging to God. Now, as we hear that, we, we should be paying close attention here to how Paul's going to answer this because he's going to outline for us who God's people truly are. What, uh, what or who does Paul say uh, makes a, a true Christian? Just as he's given three harsh descriptors of these false teachers who threaten to deceive, Paul now balances this out with three positive markers of those who are God's special people. So first, those who belong to God worship by the Spirit of God. Behind this descriptor is an understanding that even in the Old Testament, physical circumcision always pointed beyond itself to a more significant internal reality, what the Bible calls elsewhere the circumcision of the heart. This circumcision of the heart referred to the, the cutting away or the replacing of the old sinful nature, which was accomplished by God's Spirit. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2 when he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. A Christian is one who renders pleasing service to God from a new heart filled with faith. If you're truly a Christian, you've experienced a supernatural work of God's Spirit within you. And this spiritual transformation is accompanied by a glorying or a boasting in Jesus. Jesus is uh, uh, the confidence, the boast of his people, their delight. To be a Christian, of course, uh, involves believing certain propositions to be true about Jesus. 
We need to believe certain truths about who God is and how God has worked and what his world is like. But these truths are always in service of delight. Christianity is about progressively reveling in who Jesus is and what he's done for me and for you. And Paul's third descriptor is the corresponding truth to this second point. We boast in Christ Jesus, finding all our grounds for confidence in him because we put no confidence in the flesh. Christians are characterized not only by uh, what we hope in, uh, but also what we don't hope in. The word flesh is used in various ways in the Bible, but here Paul is saying that in contrast to the Judaizers who put their trust in their own devices, their own works, God's people place no confidence in anything in themselves when it comes to their standing before God. Now Paul quickly moves to bolster this point in verse 4, and this brings us to our second heading, the Christian's accounting. Paul turns to his own story to strengthen the point that a genuine Christian is one who boasts in Jesus and not in anything found in us or done by us. When Paul says that we're not to put confidence in, in the flesh, he's not doing so because he's envious or he's jealous in any way uh, of these Judaizers. He's saying it because he knows from practical experience that the rock-solid assurance of being accepted by God comes not from looking inward, not from building upon your own spiritual resume. Paul's got an impressive spiritual resume, both from the perspective of his family and his personal credentials. Paul's got the right bloodlines and the right upbringing. His parents had him circumcised on the eighth day, just as God had commanded. He came from the people of Israel, God's chosen nation to whom he had given his covenants and his promises and his, and his law. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Culturally, Paul was thoroughly Hebrew. He grew up speaking the language of the Bible and maintaining Jewish culture. We might say that Paul was a religious insider by birth. He had the right people, the right family, the right culture. And to add to all these advantages that Paul had received, Paul could point to his own efforts. As to the law of Pharisee, he says in verse 5. Elsewhere, Paul tells King Agrippa that he conformed to the strictest sect of Judaism, living as a Pharisee. So religiously speaking, Paul was downright proper. He followed the law of Moses. He followed the other traditions of the Jewish teachers. Paul was so intent that in his zeal, he even threw people in prison and killed them who threatened to undermine Judaism. Paul's religiosity was further expressed by his dedicated keeping of the law and his use of the sacrificial system as God's provision for sin so that Paul could add, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul uh, rehearses all these facts about himself to show that he's got legitimate religious credentials. He would put his resume up against any of them, except for just one reason. He's convinced that none of these things that his opponents put so much stock in were worth anything in the court of heaven. Verses 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had from these privileges of heritage or habit, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul uh, uh, disavows, uh, he disowns any boasting in his upbringing, any boasting in his bloodlines, any boasting in his moral uh, or religious character. In fact, he's going to go on and, and say even in stronger language in verse 8 that he counts them as rubbish, as dung. 
Now, Paul's not saying there's anything intrinsically wrong with being Jewish or being circumcised or being full of religious zeal, but insofar as we're tempted to view these things, anything in us or done by us as a currency by which we might uh, purchase uh, favor with God, Paul says, I view these things as odious. Uh, They're steaming, grotesque, sewage. They've got no appeal to me anymore. I, I now see them as utterly worthless. Now, what could make Paul look upon these things with such vehemence? Well, Paul had encountered uh, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, Jesus, on the road to Damascus, and that had overturned his system of spiritual accounting. All these items that Paul once counted as credits, he now shifts them into the lost column because he's had this encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. Paul lets go any uh, claim of of merit in himself because he knows he can't hold on to his own upbringing and his own accomplishments and Jesus at the same time. And this is a basic principle of the Bible's teaching about Jesus. It's really important. We need to take hold of Jesus with both hands. We can't attempt uh, to hold on to Jesus as our Savior with one hand and attempt to hold on to our own record, our own doing, our own striving in the other hand. Jesus will not allow that. So if we're to gain Christ, if we're to be found in him, as Paul speaks of it, we need to empty our hands of everything else except Jesus. And this act of forsaking confidence in anything in me or done by me and instead taking hold of Jesus is what the Bible calls faith, saving faith. Faith begins with this shocking look in the mirror when we we look and suddenly we see ourselves as, as being a sinner against God. And we see that I'm unable to fix myself, I'm unable to set myself right, and we recognize that the righteousness, the the morally flawless character that we would need for a holy God to accept us, that it is woefully, entirely absent from us. Faith sees that not only are we morally and spiritually bankrupt, not only, it's not that we've got zero dollars in the bank account, so to speak, but worse off, or worse yet, we are massive debtors. And that debt, the debt of our sin, is one that we cannot pay off. There's nothing that we could, could do or say that we could then bring to God and say, okay, there, we're squared away. Or, or, or uh, what I owe is, is a little bit smaller now. And just as we look in the mirror and we come to that shocking realization that this is our diagnosis, then faith looks outward. And faith sees sin's solution. And God opens our eyes to see Jesus offered to needy sinners like you and, to me and, and like me. And faith is our two-handed, desperate embrace of Jesus the Savior. And clinging to Jesus, Paul says, we receive a most remarkable gift. And I want you to look at this for yourself if you've still got your Bibles open. Look at verse 9. That being found in Jesus, we find a righteousness that isn't cobbled together by our own patchwork of obedience but we receive the righteousness that comes from God. Joined to Jesus by faith, God gives to us his own righteousness. A righteousness that's without spot, that's without blemish, that's without deficiency, and God wraps us in it. He covers our sin. He covers our shame. He covers our disgrace. And he does this with a righteousness that he is pleased by such that when God looks at those who belong to him in Jesus Christ, he uh, is filled with delight. Paul puts no confidence in the flesh, but he puts all of his confidence in Christ. 
This is his main emphasis in verses 3 to 9. So that, and here's our third point, he might know Christ in this life and attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's going to cause us to release our grip on our own righteousness, our own record? What will give us power to say, I don't need to depend upon my own moral striving, my own religious performance, my own righteousness? The work of God's Spirit convincing us that it's the only way that we can know Christ savingly. It's the only way that we can enjoy His resurrection life now, and it's the only way that we can enjoy the resurrection life which lasts forever. Paul wants us to know the power of Jesus' resurrection in our life today. Maybe you noticed as we were reading uh, verse 10 and 11, this unusual word order that uh, Paul uh, uses. He speaks of resurrection, then he speaks of suffering and death, and then he speaks of resurrection again. We might have expected suffering, death, resurrection, but that's not how Paul speaks. Because here in verse 10, Paul's not speaking when he refers to uh, resurrection. He's not speaking of the bodily resurrection that happens uh, at, the, at the end of time. He's going to get to that. But he's speaking of the experience of Jesus' resurrection power at work in his people, giving them spiritual life now. So Paul abandons his own shallow grounds for boasting so that he might have the life of Jesus, the life of the conqueror of sin, the conqueror of death, pulsing through him in that moment. By faith, Paul is joined with Jesus, and in his death, he's, uh, he's raised then to a newness of life. By faith, Paul's become a new creation. And having been raised with Christ, uh, when we believe, we're now dead to sin, and we've been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the result is that uh, even though Paul has stressed that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, this will not lead to a life that's casual about sin or just uh, indulges in sin in any way as, as Paul's Judaizing opponents may have accused him. Not at all. By faith, Paul has come alive to the, the power of God, to live for God in a way that just his moral effort could never do. And this spirit-given resurrection life at work in Paul begins to make us to want to obey God's law from a heart filled with faith to love God, to love our neighbor. We're raised with Jesus so that we might bear fruit to God and to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. And in this new life, Paul, and you and I, if we're trusting in Jesus alone, we've got fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. Knowing that we've been made alive in Christ Jesus should fill us with great hope and confidence in this life. Right? We've got Jesus' resurrection power at work in us if we're trusting in Jesus. But knowing that this resurrection uh, life is, it's, uh, we, we have to understand that this resurrection life is tied to a participation with Jesus' sufferings. And that's going to ground us. Sin no longer dominates us. Death will no longer be able to hold us. But now in this life, we share in the sufferings that Jesus endured and we share in them as children of God. We're still going to face the painful wrestlings uh, with remaining sin in us. We're still bombarded by the tempting power of the devil. We're still hurt and abused by other people. We're despised and rejected by the world. We can still suffer for righteousness' sake. 
And yet, remarkably, Paul says that he trusts in Jesus alone because he wants to know Jesus in this way. He wants to know uh, Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings, not just resurrection power, uh, but in his sufferings. And he wants this not because Paul's a masochist that he just delights in in difficult, uh, hard things or suffering. No. Paul wishes to know fellowship with Christ in his sufferings because in these sufferings, in this present age, the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in his people. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 4. There he recounts the various uh, sufferings that he's faced. And then he says, we carry in our body the suffering of Jesus. And why do we do that? Well, listen to what Paul says, okay? 2 Corinthians 4. We do that so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And notice this again. That happens so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. As Christians, we've been given new and eternal life. But that life is marked with a real and often very deep suffering. It's a suffering that would seem to overwhelm us, to undo us, to drown us entirely. Paul, he's writing from a prison cell. He knows that. The Philippians are experiencing persecution. They understand that. And loved ones, I think that you understand that as well. When the painful memory of a loved one who's been taken by death brings us to tears, or when we're sitting, waiting for the surgeon, or we're besieged by chronic pain, or we're jeered at for being one of those bigoted Christians, how should we understand this suffering? Suffering is complex, and the Bible says many things about suffering, but one thing we can say is that God intends to cause the power of Jesus' resurrection at work in us now to shine through the cracks in these circumstances so that others can then look at us and see the powerful life of Jesus at work in us, sustaining us, transforming us, preparing us for glory. As the power of Christ's resurrection gives us life, even now in our sufferings, we come to look like Jesus. And this is why Paul's not only eager to know Christ's resurrection power, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. It's because we'll not know the resurrection power without fellowship in in his sufferings. We don't know Christ in his resurrection power unless we know uh, Christ in this way as, as well. And we need to know him in both of these ways if we're to know the glories of the resurrection. And this brings us to verse 11. I want to pause and step back for a second to retrace the logic of our passage. First, a Christian is someone who glories in Christ Jesus, puts no confidence in the flesh. We do that so that uh, the righteousness, we might uh, receive the righteousness of God uh, that depends on faith, and we might know Jesus in his resurrection power and in his sufferings. And we do that so that, Paul says, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to know Jesus. Not just know about him, but to know him experientially. And he wants to do this so that the resurrection life at work in him now will come to full flower at the final resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul doesn't think that this is an uncertain thing. Perhaps you might think that from the language he uses when he says, by any means possible. But he's just saying, whatever route God uses uh, to take me there, whether I die a martyr, whether I die of old age, I'm looking forward to that. 
And this is why Paul's abandoned all claims of boasting in himself. It's why he's looked beyond himself to Jesus so that on the day that when Jesus returns and the trumpet sounds and the dead shall be raised, Paul will be raised victorious to enjoy the glorious presence of God fully and forever. And friend, this is why you need to abandon any confidence in anything besides Jesus too. I've heard it said that the pastor's job is to prepare his congregation to die. And I think that that's right. And my concern for you is that you would know Jesus. Not just as a doctrinal abstraction, but as the person who you can and must cast all your hopes on. I've been in ministry a relatively short time, six years, but I've already had more conversations than I would hope to recount with people both inside and outside the church that make it clear that they're banking not on circumcision, not on dietary laws, but on their zeal for pursuing justice or on reclaiming American values, on their church attendance, on their personal behavior, on the fact that God frighteningly knows their heart, on the fact that they believe the right things. And if that's you, I would just plead with you, let it go. It doesn't work. We long to prove ourselves and make ourselves acceptable. But this is not the way. Instead, take hold of Jesus with both hands, by faith, putting your confidence in him, not in yourself. That's the way to the assurance of acceptance. I want to close with two illustrations. Mr. Rogers... America's neighbor was emblematic of uh, being a good and moral person. His reputation, as you uh, know him from your television screens, was one of being loving and kind and generous. The reports were that he was the same person at home as he was on TV. And to add to his, his resume, he was a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. In our culture, if we were to tweak Paul's words, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Mr. Rogers has more. And in a documentary on on Fred Rogers' life, though, Mr. Rogers' widow, Joanne, recounted Rogers' dying question. He asked, am I a sheep? Am I a sheep? He's referring to Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, and his question raised his uncertainty and apprehension about his impending death. Had he done enough, would God accept Mr. Rogers into his heaven? And America's greatest neighbor didn't know. And though Joanne tried to reassure him by telling him that if anyone was one of God's sheep, he was, Mr. Rogers apparently died in uncertainty of whether he would be accepted by God. I want you to to form a contrast with you with another Presbyterian minister, Robert Murray McShane. McShane pastored a church in Dundee, Scotland uh, in the 1800s. He would pastor this church for only six years before he would die at 29 years old of typhoid fever. And when he was 18 years old, God used the premature death of Robert's brother David and David's deathbed discovery of finding joy in Jesus. And God used that to awaken McShane to the unsurpassed worth of knowing Jesus by faith. And some months later, McShane would write of his conversion in a poem called Jehovah Sidkenu. This poem was taken uh, from the Hebrew of Jeremiah 23, 6, which we read earlier in the service, and uh, these words just mean, the Lord our righteousness. I want you to listen to how McShane described his life before his conversion. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. 
Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah, said Kenu, was nothing to me. But then, around the time of his brother's death, God intervened. And now listen to the confidence that McShane draws in his discovery of Jesus as his righteousness. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sikenu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-given and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sidkenu, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by blood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley of the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever, my God sets me free. Jehovah, said Kenu, my death song shall be. McShane, in his short life, died in the confidence of his acceptance before God because he looked beyond himself, emptying his hands, embracing Jesus by faith. He knew the Lord as his righteousness. And friends, I don't want you to die like Mr. Rogers. My prayer for each one of you as I was preparing this message is that you would be able to live and die in the confidence of McShane. But for this to happen, McShane's confession, Jehovah Sidkenu, must be your confession. You need to know McShane's Jesus. You need to know Paul's Jesus. And you must do it as they did, by faith alone. And then God's righteousness shall be your righteousness. And on that day, when all the dead shall rise, you will be ushered before God's great throne of judgment to give an account for your life. And your defense will be short, but entirely sufficient. Jesus is my righteousness. And God will embrace you. He'll receive you. He'll love you forever. It will be the acceptance that your heart has hungered for and thirsted for. And satisfied in him as he is satisfied in you on account of the righteousness from God received by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that our anthem can be these glorious words. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. That we look beyond ourselves and we look to a Savior who is wholly obedient, who is perfect, and who offers himself to us in the gospel that his righteousness might be ours, that we might be accepted by you to enjoy you forever. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious hope that we can have. And I pray for each person here that you would by your spirit, do the work. Help us uh, in this hard work of abandoning any claims of boasting in ourselves or reasons for boasting our paltry and that you would, you would help us to take hold of Jesus by faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and join me in singing?
knowing you, Jesus, delighting in Jesus as Paul speaks of him in Philippians 3. sisters, hear these words of acceptance and the Lord's blessing, which are true because of the gospel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.